Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Last week, we continued the story of God's promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we asked a few questions. First, can God actually keep his word to give Abraham descendants, land, and blessing? The answer is yes. In fact, God is so confident of this that he makes a covenant, a binding agreement with Abraham in chapter 15. But will Abraham and Sarah trust God? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness in chapter 15. But he's also part of an ill-advised plan to speed God's course of events up in chapter 16. And finally, what sign does God give Abraham to confirm their covenant? Chapter 17 tells us about the sign of circumcision for Abraham and his offspring. And if you wonder why we're reading about this stuff in Genesis 17, focusing so much on circumcision, remember that that will become a key point of contention in the New Testament. But we press on this morning, focusing on chapters 18 and 19, where the anticipation of God finally fulfilling his promise continues to grow. But keep in mind that God's promise is bigger than Abraham, Sarah, and their family. It's bigger than descendants, land, and blessing. This grand story is about God redeeming us and our world from sin, death, and judgment. And Abraham and Sarah just play a part in it. Now, we only mentioned it briefly last week, but chapter 17 gives some important names. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. Sarah gets a new name as well. But then we also learn the name of the promised heir who will soon be born. The boy's name will be Isaac. Now, keep in mind that Sarah is 90. Abraham is pushing triple digits. 25 years have passed since the promise of chapter 12. The thought of this couple having a baby is absurd. It's laughable. But God issued a promise. God made a covenant. And Isaac will be born within the next year. But between now and then, God has work to do elsewhere. Namely, he must address the sin of two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to study your word, to sing your praises, to pray to you, and to remember Christ, who you are and what you've done for us in and through Christ. Thank you for his broken body. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you that our sins are forgiven and that we can become your friends. We can become your children. We can become your servants rather than rebels or orphans or enemies. 
We thank you for your grace to us. And Lord, be with us as we encounter your word this morning, uh, which sometimes feels a little wild compared to our everyday experience. Uh, But Lord, help us not give in to the temptation to tame your word. Lord, help us submit to your word rather than trying to finagle with your word to get it to submit to us. Help us hear what it is you have to say this morning, whether it was way back in the context of the ancient world or even thinking about how it applies today. Give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us humility as we read your word. Give us receptiveness to what you have to say. Again, help us glorify you with what we say and do this morning. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for these people in this place. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are two large chunks of scripture we're going to read this morning. The first begins in Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. Notice that that occurrence of Lord in verse 3 is lowercase. That's just a title of respect in that context. So they said to Abraham's invitation, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Sarah said, "Uh, Excuse me, can you say please? I'm just applying this to my experience, my life. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, now look at that one. All uppercase. Something is happening here. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a way of saying that she is physically incapable of having a child. It will take a miracle. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. 
He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men sent out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. All right. There's an interesting passage here, starting in verse 22. It's this negotiation of sorts. We start there. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The negotiations continue in the following verses. Abraham says, well, what about 45? What if there's 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? You know what, God, if there is anyone righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare those cities? And God says, of course I will. Verse 33, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, a whole lot going on here. But what do we learn about Abraham and Sarah in these verses? Well, first, we learn that they are both hospitable to their unexpected guests. As we discussed back in our sermon series on Jesus's parables, hospitality was an incredibly important virtue in the ancient world. And Abraham and Sarah went above and beyond to make their visitors feel welcome. They honor them. They give them food and drink. They let them kick their feet up in the shade while the sun beats down. Abraham and Sarah didn't know it at first, but they were obeying the command of Hebrews 13.2. You may have heard it before. They weren't just showing hospitality to strangers. They were entertaining angels. But we also learned something else about Sarah. In addition to being hospitable, Sarah was skeptical. But before you throw Sarah under the bus, she's not the only one who laughs at the idea of having a baby. Abraham did the same thing back in chapter 17. And can you blame Sarah for having doubts? Surely we've wrestled with our own doubts about God's promises in less far-fetched circumstances. On top of that, it's worth noting that even for Sarah's skepticism, she too, like her husband, 
is praised in Hebrews 11 for her great faith. But then we learn one more thing about Abraham. He was compassionate. We see that in his interesting concern for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, sure, he might be thinking primarily of his nephew Lot, who lives there. But we see Abraham's desire for God to treat those people justly. That's why he appeals to God on behalf of those cities. He negotiates for them. They are wicked people, but Abraham cares for even just the few righteous who might somehow live there. So Abraham and Sarah are hospitable, skeptical, and compassionate. But what do we learn about God in these verses? Well, first, we learn that God can be surprising. Now, why do I say that? I say that because in Genesis 18, the God of the universe, same God from Genesis 1 and 2, appears in the form of a man. He eats, he drinks, he rests under a tree with two of his angels. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? But if you think that's crazy, just wait until you meet Jesus. Now, this is a great example of something that occurs often in the Bible. Here's your theological word of the day. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is when God is described with human qualities. We see verses about God's eyes or God's nose or God's hands or his arm of salvation. Now, God is spirit. He doesn't actually have those creaturely qualities. But God often describes himself in ways that we can understand in his word. Ways that we can wrap our minds around. And of course, going back to Jesus, the incarnation can be called the ultimate anthropomorphism. We also learn something else about God that shouldn't surprise us if we've been paying attention the past few chapters. We learn that God is faithful. He is still just as committed to his promise and his covenant as ever. After all this time and all these years, Isaac is coming whether Abraham and Sarah believe it or not. As we discussed last week, thank God that his covenant is one-sided. Because if it depended all upon Abraham and Sarah, they would be in big trouble. Thank God that his faithfulness is stronger than ours. But we also see something else. We see that God is also just. Abraham is right to insist that God not punish the righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. God is just and he will do no such thing. However, God will punish the wicked. Even as God gives Sodom and Gomorrah a last chance of sorts, he says, you know, I'm going to go down and make 100% sure that I know what's actually happening there. As if he doesn't already. He's God. He remains just. And sometimes that means 
punishment. So that brings us to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What do we learn about them? Well, they had a reputation, first of all. Abraham knows what's up in these cities. Back in chapter 13, when Lot moved there, you can read about the sin present in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in chapter 14, Abraham refused gifts from the king of Sodom. Perhaps he already knew enough about these people to not get too mixed up with them. Sodom and Gomorrah also had a reputation among the cities around them. The great outcry against them likely came from neighboring peoples. They had a reputation. But what were they known for? What was their reputation? It was their wickedness. Verse 20, we read that their sin is, quote, very grave. Very grave. The last time we read something like that was in Genesis 6, when God sent a flood. And though it won't span the earth this time around, God will once again act as judge. So what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? They are condemned. Destroyed, swept away, put to death. Abraham knew what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. The surrounding people knew. But more importantly, God knew. And he was about to do something about it. Picking up in chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. Think back to chapter 18. Abraham's negotiations. God, surely there's 50 righteous people there. Or 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10? There's got to be some, right? I don't know. Verse 4 doesn't sound very promising, does it? Both young and old, all the people to the last man. Now we know why that's emphasized. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may... Know them. That has sexual undertones for those who are not aware. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. 
And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and now he has become the judge. We will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Jump ahead to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zaar. That's where he escaped to. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Once again, a lot to take in. But what do we learn about Abraham's nephew, Lot? Well, the first thing is good. Lot is also hospitable. He appears to be the only guy in town who welcomes the angels. And given that it is now evening, he insists that they sleep under his roof. He's a chip off the old block in that way. And when things get dire, Lot strives to protect his guests. Very hospitable. However, we also see that Lot can be a fool, to put it nicely. There's reason to believe that Lot may have been a bit too comfortable in Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't hesitate to throw his own daughters to the mob. His family doesn't take his warning seriously. And when his life is on the line, Lot bickers with the angels about the best escape route. In the words of one commentator, Lot's presence in Sodom and Gomorrah failed to have a redeeming influence. Failed to have a redeeming influence. So Lot looks good at first, but the shine quickly fades. Like Abraham and Sarah. Like every sinful human being, Lot is a complicated figure capable of both good and evil. But what do we learn about Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, these verses give us disturbing details. Their reputation for wickedness was well earned. Their plans for Lot and the angels are horrifying. 
As it turns out, Abraham's hope that surely there must be some righteous people there was well-intentioned, but naive. It's no wonder that they will be destroyed, swept away, and put to death. Now, on a side note, though this is more than a side note, given how this story is so controversial within modern debates about sexual ethics, and we can't read this story and not talk about it, it's worth asking, what exactly was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? Some commentators focus entirely on Sodom and Gomorrah's lack of hospitality. Instead of welcoming the guests, they ignored them at first, and they only acknowledged their presence when they wanted to abuse and exploit them. Not coincidentally, the argument focusing entirely on hospitality is often made by those attempting to downplay the sexual component of this story, mainly regarding the sin of homosexual practice. But those people are correct to say that the lack of hospitality was a massive part of the problem. Ezekiel 16:49 backs that up. The prophet says there that Sodom and Gomorrah did not aid the poor and the needy. And in the Gospels, Jesus compares other cities to Sodom and Gomorrah when they refuse to show hospitality to his disciples. That's a huge part of it. However, another passage in the New Testament, Jude verse 7, makes a more direct connection to the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. There, we read them accused of sexual immorality and unnatural desire. The same is true of Jewish tradition of interpreting this story. People who know a thing or two about the book of Genesis Jewish writers like Josephus or Philo, they acknowledge that hospitality was an important part of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, but it wasn't the only part. So where do we land? Well, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was both their lack of hospitality and their sexual immorality. The second expresses the first. So try as we might, we cannot totally disconnect sexual desire from the sin of these two cities. The men there desired to sleep with who they thought were other men, and that's part of why God judged them. But why does this matter? Well, it matters because Christians like us and churches like ours need to discern how or if the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is relevant to our teaching on homosexual practice. Does this story have anything to say about homosexual practice or not? Can it be applied to a scenario of two grown men or two grown women in a consensual, committed, loving, monogamous sexual relationship? Because that's clearly not the scenario we see in this story. This is a story of power, abuse, and violence. So is this relevant or not? Well, in the end, we can't totally ignore the sexual component of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. 
And to be honest, this probably shouldn't be the first passage we turn to when addressing the sin of homosexual practice as it's usually expressed in our day and age. But that still leaves us having to wrestle with other biblical passages that do speak clearly, consistently, and pointedly to the forms of homosexual practice that we're more likely to see today. Passages like Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1 still have to be dealt with. So we've learned about Lot. We've learned about Sodom and Gomorrah. What do we learn about God from this chapter? Well, like we saw earlier, he is faithful. He warns Lot. He's patient with Lot. He saves Lot. Why? Because he remembered his promise to Abraham. In verses 30 through 38, more nations come into existence. More nations are blessed because God saved Lot. Because God remembered his promise. Like we saw earlier, we see again that God is surprising. He doesn't send some mere natural disaster. The flood may fall into that category. He sends fire and brimstone. His judgment is unquestionably supernatural. And like we saw earlier, God is just. He was right all along. There really was no one in Sodom and Gomorrah who deserved to be spared. So in destroying those two cities, God acted in a way consistent with his holy character. He acted justly in punishing sin. The question is not why were Sodom and Gomorrah judged so harshly. The more appropriate question is why in the world should we not be? And that drives us to consider God's grace. So. Genesis 18 and 19. What did you expect from a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah? There is a reason we're so tempted to ignore this story. But as we close, allow me to present one more New Testament passage for your consideration. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. The apostle writes there, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot... Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, hold on. Wait a minute. The Genesis account presents Lot as more of a fool 
than a hero. But Peter makes him sound quite righteous. What gives? Is Lot a sinner or a saint? Well, I think Lot was both. The same was true of Abraham and Sarah. It will be true of Isaac. It will be true of Jacob. It will be true of just about every so-called hero in this book. With one notable exception, of course. And the same is true of us. We believers in Jesus are both sinners. No better than the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, deserving judgment, and saints. As Martin Luther argued, Christians are simultaneously righteous and sinful. We're righteous in Christ and sinful in and of ourselves. So I think we see glimmers of the gospel in Genesis 18 and 19, believe it or not, especially in the story of Abraham's nephew. Lot was capable of both good and evil. He could agonize over sin and linger too long among it. He could display virtue and vice. He could deserve to be judged and be undeservingly saved. And I don't know about you, but that's me. In a sense, Lot was saved thanks to his relationship with someone else. Abraham. And in a very real sense, we Christians are saved by our relationship with someone else. Jesus. We don't get judgment, though we deserve it. Because Jesus took ours. Like Abraham, Jesus interceded on behalf of sinners. But unlike Abraham, he went so far as to take our sin upon himself so that we might be spared. Not just talk. Not just negotiate. Not just debate. But he died. Of course, many questions still arise from a shocking story like Genesis 18 and 19. For example, could Sodom and Gomorrah have repented of their sin and been saved from judgment? Well, the answer has to be yes, and they should have. But the more pressing question for this morning is, will we? Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for... This time that we've had together, thank you for your word, including the parts that we sidestep, avoid, prefer to not think about, talk about, preach about. Thank you for your word. As we said earlier, help us submit to your word. I pray that your word would shape us rather than us trying to bend and contort and shape your word to fit our desires or fit our priorities or fit our opinions. Lord, I pray also that you would give us wisdom about how we read stories like this, how we apply stories like this, how we think through stories like this, in terms of our engagement with the world around us. As we said, this is complex, this is sensitive, this is hard, this is emotional, this affects real people. This isn't just an an issue that we debate or take a stance on. 
So, Lord, give us humility, wisdom, patience, grace. Give us reasonableness as we think about how to talk about sin in our world, how to talk about the sins of others, and how to remember our own sin, to remember the logs in our own eyes before pointing out the specks in others. So give us wisdom in this. And Lord, thank you that even in the midst of a fallen world that we see in Genesis 18 and 19, that we will see when we walk out of the door here in a few minutes, when we see even here and now in the sanctuary, we see residue of the fall, even among believers. Thank you that even in all that darkness, all that ugliness, there are still glimmers of the gospel. We see it in the story of Lot, and I think we see it in all kinds of ways in our day and age, if we look closely enough. So Lord, remind us of the good things that we read about. Your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, your faithfulness, your grace. And thank you that those things still exist, even in the midst of the fall, and all of its ugliness. Thank you for your son Jesus, who saves sinners. Sinners like those from Sodom and Gomorrah, sinners like those in this room, sinners like those on this stage, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to sinners of all walks and all stripes. Help us remember that day in and day out. We love you, we praise you, we glorify you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.